Well, welcome back uh, to our, our last presentation of a truly informative and very important morning. And some of you are live listening to this, and hopefully this has been useful to all of you. And I know some of you will be listening uh, in, a, in a virtual fashion. And this particular presentation is going to be very important, and I know it's going to be played over and over again uh, as, we, as we hear about the building inclusive government in the, in the city of Hartford. Let me uh, introduce our speaker, uh, really spectacular uh, pedigree and curriculum, uh, and uh, Tia Montañez, and I want to emphasize the Ñ in Montañez, that's an important one, and I'm going to quiz everyone here in the auditorium, see if they can actually pronounce it correctly. Uh, it's a Hartford native. I learned she was actually born at Hartford Hospital, so she really has been here for, for quite a long time. Uh, and she was appointed Chief Operating Officer of the City of Hartford by, by Mayor Luke Bronin and the City Council in February 2020, and that's a huge job. As Chief Operating Officer of the capital city, she oversees 1,500 employees uh, across 13 departments and manages an operating capital budget of $600 million dollars and which serves 124,000 residents. So this is a huge job as a chief operating officer for the city of Hartford. In addition, she spearheads the mayor city's initiatives designed to address the needs of its immigrant community, which is large, and justice involved youth and adults. Prior to that, she was the first woman in the city, city's 236-year history to serve as chief of staff. Uh, before uh, joining the mayor's team, uh, Tia was appointed by the former mayor, Pedro Segarra, who I actually saw at the airport last Friday, as the director of the North Hartford Promise Zone, uh, a U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development program that partners with local leaders to increase economic activity, improve, improve educational opportunities, reduce violent crime, and improve public health and high-poverty communities. And we are actually here with the, through Paul Dworkin, OCCH, and the grant that we just got. We're working in the North End in this Promise Zone. After initially moving to New York following her graduation from Syracuse University in 2001, she came back to Hartford uh, and became heavily involved in the community. She worked with the Metro, Health, Metro Hartford Alliance as Director of Operations for the Connecticut Convention Center and the Hartford Financial Services Group, leading their local grant making and sponsorship program. She later started her own consulting firm for making communications and strategic planning specializing in community affairs. Tia has served on numerous boards for nonprofit organizations like the Hartford Public Library, the Connecticut Public Broadcasting Network, and the University of St. Joseph. In addition, she currently serves as the member of the State of Connecticut Judicial Selection Commission. Among, among other awards, she has named the Connecticut Magazine's 40 Under 40, the Connecticut Women's Alliance Women of Distinction, and one of Connecticut's 50 most influential Latinos by Latinos United for Professional Advancement. So it's really my honor to uh, introduce her, and we're just so delighted that she has agreed to uh, come to speak to us and share some of the views about Hartford, her own journey, and building inclusive government. Uh, so Tia, thank you, and if you can please come up to the podium. Thank you, Dr. Salazar, for that really warm welcome, and thank you uh, for this invitation to be a part of today's symposium. Mayor Bronin uh, was going to actually participate today, and he is traveling, and he sends his best, but it's really my good fortune that I'm here instead. And so uh, the topic of my discussion, my presentation today, is how we are trying to build an inclusive government in the city of Hartford. And I just want to point out that the first slide there is a real photo of real Hartford young men uh, that are a part of our Hartford Youth Service Corps. And I'm going to talk about that um, in my presentation. So uh, going on, let's see, I have a 
clicker. I usually never get a clicker. There I go. So I'm not going to repeat what Dr. Salazar has already shared with you in terms of my background. Um, I was appointed uh, COO in February of 2020, one month before our lives were changed forever by the pandemic. Uh, and since then, uh, to say the very least, it has not been boring. Uh, the city has uh, tried to navigate the pandemic uh, with incredible partners like CCMC and a whole host of others uh, to try to support the needs of our residents during this really difficult time. And uh, there have been other challenges uh, that have come up uh, during the past two years. Uh, and so part of what I will be sharing today is the work that we are doing that's been informed uh, by the experiences within the past couple of years. Uh, as uh, Dr. Salazar indicated, uh, I oversee about 13 of our operating departments as a city workforce. We currently have 1,400 employees. Uh, and I also have the good fortune of spearheading uh, our community safety and wellness initiatives, which is something new within the office of the COO. That work has very much been informed by my own personal experiences, the experiences of my family growing up in Hartford, the challenges that we have faced, uh, you know, that many of our residents are facing every day in the city, whether it is around poverty or violence, addiction, incarceration. It is those experiences that have really informed the work that we're doing within the Office of Community Safety and Wellness. And so um, I just want to talk a little bit about local government in general. I certainly never saw myself doing this work. In fact, growing up in Hartford, uh, as far as long as I can remember, I always, uh, I remember having an escape plan. And I knew that as soon as I graduated high school that I would head to college and then to a big city like New York, because at one point in my life, I thought that was where opportunities were, uh, that there were not opportunities uh, in Hartford. And so I eventually graduated from Syracuse University. I eventually lived in New York City for two years. And believe it or not, I became very bored very quickly. I found the work that I was doing there not fulfilling. Uh, and there were two major reasons I decided to leave this life I thought I wanted to come back to my hometown. And it is my mother and father. Uh, so I am the oldest of three. I very much felt the need to come back to care for them. It was the best decision that I have ever made, um, especially, you know, I, I realized that um, during the past two years during this uh, pandemic. And so I have been here ever since, again, never thinking in a million years that I would work in local government. And my next slide uh, will uh, give you a, a sense of why. Uh, so this is Ron Swanson. He is a fictional character in a sitcom called Parks and Recreation, which is about a local government in Pawnee, Indiana. And Ron Swanson is the deputy director of their Parks and Recreation Division. And so this is a quote from Ron about one of the employees in his division. And he says, I like Tom. He doesn't do a lot of work around here. He shows zero initiative. He's not a team player. He's never wanted to take that extra mile. Tom is exactly what I'm looking for in a government employee. Uh, and I have to say to you that that perception or misperception of people that work for the government um, is one of the reasons why I never saw myself working in government. Uh, and unfortunately, it's a misperception, I think, that many of us have, right, about who are the people that are working both at the local and state and federal level. I think we all have to inter interact with the governor or government probably on a 
regular basis, whether you are going to the Department of Motor Vehicles um, or your local police department, or if your children go to you know, public schools, right? Every day we are interacting with local government. And unfortunately, our interactions are not always positive. Uh, they are often met uh, with a lot of bureaucracy. Uh, and so again, I never saw myself being part of that system, but I can say it was one of the best decisions that I made was to join Mayor Bronin uh, in 2016 uh, to figure out how I could be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And that's what we've been trying to work towards ever since then. So uh, the next slide that I'm going to show you, again, kind of um, makes sense given Ron's uh, uh, quote about uh, who exactly works in government. This is a 2021 uh, Gallup uh, survey that was done about the public's trust in local and in state government and our ability to handle problems. And it tracks the data beginning uh, in 1997 up until just last year, 2021. And you can see that starting in 97, um, it was much higher than when we are today. Uh, the green line there represents confidence in local government at the municipal level, and uh, the blue line represents state government government. The good news is that the public has more confidence in local government, with about 66% of those being surveyed saying that they had confidence uh, in, their, in their towns, in their cities, uh, but not so much confidence in their state government. And what this survey doesn't show is the results of, um, of the feedback that was shared about confidence in federal government. It was even less than 57%. It was actually 41% when it came to the federal government's ability to handle uh, problems at the domestic level. So this is how we are structured in the city of Hartford. This is our organizational chart. Um, there are many different forms of government. Um, many smaller towns have what's referred to as a um, council manager uh, form of government, meaning that uh, your local town council um, appoints a town manager, and it is that town manager who runs the day-to-day -day operations of your community. And in cities uh, the size of Hartford and larger, we have what's referred to as a mayor council form of government, meaning that the mayor is the CEO of the city and that the council, the city council, is the legislative body uh, for the city. And here in the city of Hartford, we have nine council members that are elected at large, meaning that they represent the entire city. They don't re represent specific districts or wards like they say, let's um, like they do, let's say, in New Haven. Um, so we have nine council members and they uh, are elected uh, by the residents. The other uh, two positions that are elected by our residents are our registrar of voters and then our city treasurer. But I'm gonna focus, um, you'll see that there is the mayor and that arrow, that's me. Um, and uh, alongside myself as a direct port to the mayor is the chief of staff. Uh, who handles all communications and legislative matters, and then our CFO, our chief financial officer, who oversees management budget grants and finance. Um, so going back to the office of the COO, there I am, there are the departments um, that I oversee on a day-to-day -day basis on behalf of the mayor. So that's everything beginning with our Department of Family, Children, and Youth and Recreation, IT, HR, Public Safety, which is comprised of three different departments, which is Fire, Police, and Emergency emergency services and telecom, which is 911 dispatch. Uh, it also, uh, as part of our operating team, is the Department of Public Works, right? So that's the team that, you know, maintains
maintains our roads and our parks. Um, they have actually a really huge job, uh, and they're an important part of what we do every day. Um, there is our development services team that is focused on economic development, issues related to housing, um, license and inspections. Uh, and then, of course, there is our amazing health and human services a team that has been leading our COVID response for the past two years. So that's who we are as a, a city government. And I'm sure many of you already know this if you live or work here in Hartford. Uh, and so just a little recap of who we are as a city. We are the fourth largest city in the state of Connecticut. And we are also one of the oldest cities in the country. In fact, we are going to be turning 400 in the year 2035. And we've got lots of plans and goals uh, as we get closer uh, to celebrating um, our 400th birthday. Uh, we have about a population of over 122,000 people and 17 square miles. It's worth noting that half of those 70 square miles are made up of parks. We have a beautiful park system uh, and, um, and again, um, about 120,000 residents uh, that live within the community. 27% of our residents live below the poverty line, with 60% of them earning a household annual income of less than $50,000. Um, the primary race and ethnicity breakdown, 45% are Hispanic, 36% black, and 16% uh, white. It is worth noting that 57% um, speak English primarily at the home, and 36% are Spanish-speaking, with 5% representing uh, Indo-European languages. 20% uh, of our residents are foreign-born, foreign with 73% of those foreign-born coming from Latin America. So we are a very, very diverse uh, community, and we are so proud of that diversity. Uh, and it is why it is so important that as a city government, that when we are thinking about programs and services, that we keep uh, you know, inclusion in mind, right? And so there are lots of uh, different sources for uh, defining what inclusion means. But this was actually my favorite uh, definition. And this, it comes from the US Department of Housing and Urban development, a federal agency, a very large federal agency. And they define inclusion as a state of being valued, respected, and supported. It's about focusing on the needs of every individual and ensuring the right conditions are in place for each person to achieve his or her full potential. And in a city as challenged as Hartford, uh, it does not mean that it is not possible to do that. It just means that, again, as local government, we have to work that much harder to make sure we create those conditions. And we certainly cannot do that by ourselves. We do that in partnership uh, with so many great community-based organizations and partner agencies and places like CCMC. Um, so uh, with that in mind, you know, I was thinking a little bit about how I wanted to talk about inclusion in the context of government. And oftentimes when you hear about diversity and inclusion, it's very much focused on an organization's workforce. But I wanted to talk about it in the context of how we are trying to be inclusive and how we show up each and every day in our community for the people that depend on us the most. And so uh, going back to um, the Office of Community Safety and Wellness, um, that is a new division within the office of the COO. Traditionally, the COO has been focused on maintaining the city's assets. And by assets, I am referring to 
um, buildings, right, our roadways, our park systems, our facilities. And so a lot of the CEO, COO's time has been spent on trying to maintain and preserve those spaces and places, right? It is our infrastructure that we need uh, to maintain in order uh, for our community um, to do what they have to do day in and day out. And about a year ago, um, I uh, was very much inspired by federal legislation, the Build Back um, Build Back Better um, package that came out of COVID um, as part of uh, the federal government's COVID relief plan. And in that spending plan, they talked about the need to invest in infrastructure, but they also talked about a different asset, which is just as important, and that is our human capital. And so here in the city of Hartford, um, I thought about where within our city government we were focusing on ensuring that we are investing in our human capital. And that is what really inspired the creation of the Office of Community Safety and Wellness. And that office is led by Patricia McIntosh, who uh, is a former employee of CCMC. In fact, she used to work in the Child and Family Support uh, Services Division. And we are so, so lucky uh, to have someone with Patricia's um, professional experience, as well as her compassion and all the great things she brings to the team, leading that work within the office of the COO. So the office itself uh, focuses on interdepartmental initiatives that are supporting the needs of our community, which as I just talked about is very diverse. One of those communities within our community um, that is a very large community that needs support are those persons uh, who have been uh, uh, in, uh, who have been incarcerated. And so uh, it was back in 2018 that the city opened up for the first time the Reentry Welcome Center. Uh, the city of Hartford actually has one of the largest reentry populations in the state of Connecticut. And the data tells us that 77% of persons that are released from incarceration will get rearrested within five years of their release. And a lot of that is informed by the way in which we traditionally have released persons from incarceration. I will say to you that, you know, in Connecticut at one point, uh, if you were somebody that uh, was being released from prison and you did not have someone to pick you up, um, on the day of your release, uh, the Department of Corrections would provide transportation. And if you were coming back to Hartford, uh, they would most likely drop you off on Lafayette Street, which is uh, where there are several courthouses. And uh, you were left to figure it out. Um, so you were not necessarily given a roadmap on what to do to re-enter society. It was up to you to figure it out. And we thought there was a better way that we could support persons coming um, out of incarceration and set them up for success. And so this reentry center um, was one of the ways we were trying to do that. It took two years uh, in, in planning with uh, several different community-based organizations. The work was led by Community Partners in Action, which is an amazing nonprofit that is 150 years old. They are based in Hartford, but they do work throughout the state focusing specifically on justice-involved youth and adults. And so Community Partners in Action partnered with the city to create 
the Reentry Welcome Center. Uh, it is uh, a space within City Hall that offers individuals coming home from incarceration with information, referrals, and services such as basic needs, housing, um, substance abuse, mental health, medical employment um, assistance, along with something as simple as helping them get an ID. Um, since, uh, again, I indicated it first opened in 2018, and in its first year, uh, it assisted 458 individuals. We're really, really grateful to the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving for making the center possible. In fact, they funded uh, the center uh, during its first two years of operations, and they've recommitted funding to the center. And uh, the city of Hartford has actually committed our, uh, a portion of our COVID relief dollars to expanding the center. So instead of being at City Hall, we are actually relocating to a much larger facility still in Hartford where we can help even more people. And we're really excited to do that because we've seen some really positive results. Uh, the second uh, program or initiative within the Office of, the, uh, of Community Safety and Wellness is our Youth Service Corps. So the young men that you saw a photo of in the beginning of my presentation are uh, young people that are part of the Youth Service Corps, which Mayor Bronin actually created back in 2016. Every year we uh, have about 250 young people ages 16 to 24 that have the opportunity to earn a paycheck while doing meaningful community service-based projects in the city of Hartford. Um, and at the same token, they receive intensive coaching, mentoring, and support focused on uh, their mental and emotional well-being. Since 2016, we have enrolled 1,400 young people who have completed 1,400 community service-based projects in the city, and 83% of those young people have re-engaged in high school. It's worth noting that a third of those young people are justice-involved. Many of them have been DCF'd involved in our foster systems and homeless. Many of them are also young parents. Um, so it was really important for us to create this program as an on-ramp for our young people uh, to find permanent employment or housing or achieve any other, other of the goals that they have for themselves. And the photo you see there, again, is a real picture of two Youth Service Corps members maintaining a community garden here in Hartford. So uh, the initiative I really wanted to talk a lot about, uh, uh, which is the focus of my presentation uh, today, is our HEART team. And uh, HEART stands for Hartford Emergency Assistance Response Team. It is actually, it was just recently announced um, that we have begun implementing this initiative. Um, and this is something that Patricia uh, uh, McIntosh, who I referenced earlier, has been leading for the past year and a half. The HEART team, um, you know, our goal in creating the HEART team was to reduce law enforcement's involvement with 911 calls related to community members in emotional distress. And I just want to note that, you know, typically when there is a call that um, is made to 911 for somebody who is emotionally distressed, the way that that call is coded in our system and in systems throughout the country is as a person that is emotionally disturbed. Um, and, and I don't know anybody that enjoys being referred to as disturbed. Uh, so we thought it would be much more uh, compassionate to think of them as being emotionally distressed. 
Our challenge, and this is not specific to Hartford, we're seeing this throughout the country, and I thank all of you in doing the work that you do with young people, with children and youth experience this and know firsthand about the behavioral health crisis that we are experiencing. Um, you will see some of these data points. I, I don't feel the need to repeat them to you um, about how significant uh, this issue is in this country. I will point out that it is estimated that 10% of calls for police assistance are for persons with severe mental illness. And the likelihood of persons with behavioral health issues coming into contact with law enforcement is very high. In fact, uh, it is documented that 10 times more people with serious mental health are in our nation's correction facilities than in our state's psychiatric hospitals. Locally, uh, it is estimated about uh, a half a million um, adults in Connecticut have a mental health condition and behavioral health concerns increase demand on police forces as they are often called to assist through our 911 system. A little bit about our 911 system here in Hartford. We receive the highest call uh, volume in the state of Connecticut year after year. In fact, in 2019, our call center received nearly 431,000 calls. Um, and out of those calls, 38% required police assistance. In 2020, we saw somewhat of a decline in the number of calls, um, but we saw an increase in the number of calls that required the police to assist. We saw about a 28% increase, and we think that was attributed in part due to the pandemic. When we looked more into the data, and we looked specifically between September of 2019 through the end of August um, in 2020, 4.4% uh, of the calls to the police concerned uh, someone that was emotionally distressed, uh, with 77% of those calls being served by EMS and police responders. About 7% of those calls involved uh, a licensed clinical social work responder from the Capital Region Mental Health uh, Center's Mobile Crisis Unit, and I'll talk a little bit about that partnership that we've had uh, with them for the past several years. And the majority, uh, although the majority of the calls we received are for adults, nearly 14% uh, of those calls were for young people under the age of 18 years old. So when there is a 911 call, depending on the call, right, it's just not the police, it's just not EMS, it is also our fire department. So uh, during September 2019 through the end of August in 2020, uh, fire responded to about 1,800 behavioral health calls alongside EMS. Uh, responders from the fire department are trained as emergency medical responders, but they have minimal behavioral health training and are not trained in de-escalation techniques and are not trained in either chemical or physical restraints. Oftentimes, the fire department is the first on the scene, but has no direct training or authority to intervene uh, in behavioral health encounters. Our police department, as I mentioned, um, you know, respond to uh, the majority of calls that we receive. Uh, in 2020, we had an independent climate study of our, the Hartford Police Departments, and our officers indicated they had a strong interest within the department to receive more training regarding persons with intellectual and physical disabilities, as well as those struggling with mental illness. Uh, the police department does send a subset of our officers to the Connecticut Alliance to Benefit Law Enforcement, uh, acronym is CABLE, basic training. That's an organization that trains law enforcement on mental health. Uh, and de-escalation. Uh, in Hartford, uh, not all of our officers receive that training. Um, the training that is uh, facilitated is crisis intervention training, or CIT training. Currently, uh, we have about 22% of our Hartford officers that are CIT trained by cable. 
Uh, I mentioned uh, Capital Region Mental Health Services, and we have had a partnership, the police department has had a partnership with them for the past several years. Um, and what we have created in Hartford is a co-responder model, uh, which is uh, which involves a CI-trained police officer uh, from our police department going out with a CIT-trained clinician from the mobile crisis that are responding to 911 calls that are involving someone who is emotionally distressed. The hours of operation you see there are prior to the pandemic, uh, but it was limited. It was during the week, and a lot of that, you know, was based on availability. Uh, I am happy to report uh, that uh, we have been very fortunate uh, that this team, um, the Capital Region Mental Health Services team, has expanded their hours of operation, and so we are not just limited during the week from eight to five, essentially, they are now available at night and on weekends, and their primary focus is adults. Um, but that is the system that we've had in place for the past several years. And although it was certainly better than what most communities have in place, it was not enough. And so we set out to figure out how we could increase um, uh, the availability of social workers who are able to respond to 911 calls for persons that are emotionally distressed. And so back in 2020, Mayor Bronin and the Hartford City Council announced plans to build out what was then called a Hartford Civilian Crisis Response Team. The team would include non-law enforcement social work uh, professionals, or excuse me, non-law enforcement professionals, i.e. social workers, to replace or assist with 911 calls involving substance abuse, mental health issues, and other non-violent calls for assistance. So in September following that decision, uh, the mayor and the city council approved a budget of about $5 million to support this initiative over four years. And to begin the planning effort, the mayor convened a group of advisors. Um, and these are some of the folks uh, that made up that advisory uh, board. We are so grateful for their partnership. You will see that we had several members of the local healthcare community, including the CEO of Capital Region Mental Health Center. Um, we had uh, Dr. Um, Schwartz, uh, who was the former former head of the Institute of Living, along with Dr. Stephen Wolf, who has since then retired from St. Francis, but he was a head of the ER there. He is also the medical director of the police department. Uh, and we also, of course, had representation from various city um, departments, heads, directors that represented our public safety departments, as well as health and human services, myself, and representation from our city council. Uh, the advisory board was charged with doing um, about five or six different things. Um, they were reviewing the services that we currently uh, have available, like the co-responder model that I shared. Uh, they sought input from key stakeholders and constituents, uh, trying to understand what was working, what wasn't working well, where were there gaps that we needed to fill in. They looked at 20 different models uh, elsewhere in the U.S. Uh, where there was this type of um, uh, team set up of non law enforcement responding to persons with emotional distress. They identified essential components of an effective crisis response program. They identified, a gap, again, gaps in our existing program, and then also recommended an enhanced model for what it is that we have been doing for the past several years. A big, big part of uh, the planning effort was engaging community. Uh, and so uh, we did various focus groups and, and surveying of residents and hospitals, including members of the team here at CCMC. Uh, we talked to community 
clinicians, community organization, organizations, first responders, our dispatch personnel, um, again, trying to get as much feedback as possible to inform what our model would look, look like here in Hartford. We did that through surveys and focus groups, both in English and Spanish, recognizing we have a very large Spanish-speaking population. And we thought it was really important to keep community aware of the status of our planning efforts. And so um, we, Mayor Bronin, hosted uh, virtual town halls uh, to share and review our planning efforts and also solicit questions from the community. And we made that available via public access as well as social media. And the flyer you see here is uh, just an example of, um, of the type of engagement that we were doing. This is in the form of a town hall that took place in January. So after several months of the advisory board convening, they came back to the mayor with a set of recommendations and they said these are eight very important components um, of uh, this program, this initiative um, that you're building out that you have, to, you have to do this, right? So we have to meet the needs of both adults and youth. And as I mentioned, our co-responsor model that we had in place for years ha was only available to adults and not young people. So we knew we had to be able to uh, respond to, need, to the needs of both those populations. We felt it was important um, that uh, the services be accessed through our existing public safety access points, which is our 911 call center. Um, we felt it was really important to employ a social worker as a key responder. Uh, given, you know, again, the number of Spanish-speaking residents, we also uh, knew it was critical to have bilingual providers as well. Um, there needed to be a commitment to res um, uh, for us to take into consideration, again, the diversity of the community, and that should be reflected in the folks that were being hired to go out uh, to respond to these calls. Uh, we recognize that some uh, calls may involve police, especially if they are violent in nature, but we know uh, going into it that that may not always be the case. Um, we knew that uh, in addition to showing up to assist uh, for the immediate need, that there was also a need to do follow-up, um, and there was a case management component um, to our response as well. And we also believed that it was really important to collect as much data as possible uh, and to use that um, to ensure that we are monitoring the quality of the program. Then there was about six um, skill sets uh, that the uh, advisory board felt was necessary um, for us to ensure uh, that our responders had, right? And so one was the ability to de-escalate um, anytime they were interacting with a person who was distressed. Two was uh, knowledge of mental illness. Three was the ability to administer Narcan for those persons in community struggling with addiction. Four was the ability to assist uh, community members with resources and referrals, including basic needs like clothing, food, and shelter. Uh, the next um, skill set we thought was very important was the ability to um, access backup support if and when safety concerns came up uh, as they were interacting with a person in need. And then the last, but certainly not least, was the ability to transport persons that may require um, additional assistance. So uh, here we are today. Uh, that is the Heart Team logo. As you can see, that is the city skyline. It was really important um, for us uh, to create an identity uh, that, um, you know, when our teams would go out um, to assist, that they were able to be easily identified by public safety as our Heart Team. But also, we wanted those persons uh, who were in distress, who were receiving the services of the Heart Team, uh, to know that they were, you know. Um, 
um, being met with somebody, uh, um, being met with compassion. And so, um, you know, we were very intentional in creating that heart uh, logo that you see. Oftentimes, traditionally, when um, persons that um, may be scared um, or angry or, again, emotional distress, uh, law enforcement does not always create a, a sense of calmness. Sometimes it can actually escalate a situation depending on the person's frame of mind. So, again, we thought it was really important uh, that we have something to easily identify our heart team as non-law enforcement. So the heart team itself, uh, we created a, a, a uh, a tiered response system to 911 calls. It actually uh, just started this spring, um, and uh, in a couple of weeks, our 911 call center, fingers crossed, uh, will begin dispatching the heart team just as they dispatch fire and police and ES and, and excuse me, EMS. Um, the heart team itself, so it supplements our public safety departments, and uh, we actually, uh, through an RFP process and multiple discussions with various local healthcare behavioral health providers, we uh, were fortunate enough to find three behavioral health agencies that would make up the heart team. So I'm just going to walk through those three agencies and tell you a little bit about the work that they are charged with doing beginning with Capital Region Mental Health. So as I've indicated, we had an existing partnership uh, with Capital Region. They've been partnering with the police department, uh, doing that co-responder model for years, again, focusing specifically on adults. Their work, uh, their availability has increased, um, especially during the past two years, given everything that we've experienced during this pandemic. And they will continue to focus on adults with severe and persistent mental health endo co-occurring substance abuse issues. Uh, their response model um, actually is under DEMAS, which is a state agency, the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. Um, and so uh, they uh, provide their mobile crisis team um, unit services, not just to Hartford, but to the region as well. Uh, and they will continue to deploy their team of uh, clinicians to go out with PD. And sometimes they actually end up going by themselves again if it does not require law enforcement. So we've had this relationship for quite some time. We will continue to build and strengthen it. Uh, and they will continue to be, again, the first uh, responder uh, for those adults with severe and persistent mental health issues. Our second behavioral health agency partner uh, that um, uh, is a new partner, um, not new to the city. Uh, CRT has providing services in the community and in the region uh, for decades. Um, is um, a new partnership we developed with CRT for them to respond to 911 calls uh, for adults in less acute emotional distress. And their response model is a little different, whereas Capital Region will send out a team of clinicians, social workers. The response model with CRT for those less acute calls involved a, involves a social worker, but also a peer responder. Um, so we're really excited to be able to hire um, Hartford residents um, with lived experience to partner with that social worker to go out uh, to provide assistance to our residents. Um, they will focus on de-escalation and connection to other other services, which is the work that CRT has been doing in this community for decades, and it's everything from basic needs to employment, housing, and other health services. And that follow-up, that case management component, we think is critical uh, to ensuring that uh, you know folks um, that are emotionally distressed are not calling 911 again, right? Because uh, an issue has not been resolved. We think CRT is best positioned to help work with that person again, focusing on adults, um, to uh, address any issue that may be leading to or causing the emotional distress. 
Our third uh, partner uh, as part of the HEART team, again, is a newer partner. It is Wheeler Clinic. They will be focusing specifically on children and youth, persons under the age of 18 that are experiencing a behavioral health crisis. Uh, Wheeler already responds um, to uh, two calls for assistance involving young people through the 211 system, and that is an effort that is funded through the state of Connecticut's Department of Children and Families. Um, Wheeler has had a long-standing partnership with the Hartford Public School System, uh, as well as uh, CREC and other educational districts, and so uh, they are very familiar with the needs of our young people in Hartford, and we're really excited uh, to be able to uh, include them as part of this effort so that they are now available to our children and families who are calling calling 911 because their child or, or the, a young person is distressed and needs assistance. Um, so they will deploy clinicians to go out um, uh, to meet with our uh, young people. Um, they are able to provide the follow-up care, that case management component that we think is really critical. And again, they have existing partnerships with 211, DCF, the Hartford Public School Systems, and CCMC. Um, so those are the three uh, agencies that make up our, our HEART team. And again, we're just getting started. Uh, it has been a really long planning process. Um, many cities that choose to develop this type of response to 911 calls uh, typically take several years um, to get something like this off the ground. In fact, I read an article that another city somewhere, um, it had taken them seven years to build this model, uh, but Mayor Bronin is someone uh, who has a sense of urgency um, and felt that this was something that we needed to figure out quickly. And so I'm grateful to our team at the, at the city along with our partners. Um, it's been this constellation um, of organizations that have helped us get to this point where we'll be available to deploy uh, social workers, and peer responders to assist those persons in community that are experiencing um, emotional distress. So before I take questions, I just also wanted to take this opportunity just to thank all of you for the work that you do each and every day. You know, I was telling Dr. Salazar, I normally um, am not uh, the face of uh, city government. Uh, that is a lot of the work that the mayor does. And um, when I heard that the city had an opportunity to speak to all of you today and Mayor Bronin was unable to attend, I wanted to ensure that at least uh, we, rep we were represented um, you know, especially just to say thank you uh, for the work that you do each and every day, and especially during the past two years, which have been the hardest for our children and their families. This is a picture of two kids, um, two uh, of uh, residents in the city. Um, the little girl there was graduating from pre-K, and she took this photo with her brother. Um, and uh, our kids face enormous challenges every day, some of it that breaks my heart, and we're working really hard to try to figure out how to uh, address those issues. Some of those things are beyond our control, um, but I am grateful to all of you uh, because I know that when our kids need help and that they're in your care, that you treat them with uh, respect and love and compassion, and we are really grateful to you for doing that each and every day. So with that being said, um, I'm happy to take any questions. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you so much. Uh, that was uh, spectacular. And you're always welcome to represent the mayor here. Or, uh, I think uh, he probably is listening somewhere. He's going to be very proud of the, of the presentation you gave, which was flawless, by the way. So, oh, thank you. So very good. Uh, the uh, Emily Boucher thanks you for your public service. Uh, so she's thank you thank very you, much. And again, for all for, for those of you, please use the Q and A function for for questions uh, that that you may have. Um, you know, for uh, for Tia, obviously she's representing a, a large constituency, and I was very impressed with the 
the way that the structure has been put together, and of course you have an enormous responsibility in, in so many ways. While, while people are, are, are thinking of, um, of questions, I mean, uh, as you know, we have a, uh, we have a tremendous crisis uh, with behavioral health, mental health, with our youth, many uh, from the city of Hartford, uh, and many of them uh, end up in the emergency department uh, at Connecticut Children's. Uh, we're obviously working closely with, with, with you and your office and, and the state health department to try to modify that because I, I believe the, the, the best way to approach it is to avoid them actually coming into the emergency department and, and those services are, that you highlighted are, are so important, so critical. Uh, so um, the Wheeler Clinic is is in the north end, if if I remember, uh, for the most part. But we many of the kids are from the south end of Hartford. So are you exploring additional partnerships that that allow uh, sort of easier access for the kids that are not necessarily in that part of the city? Sure. Thank you for the question. Uh, so Wheeler will be able to respond. Uh, to any child, youth, family uh, that is in need of their services throughout the city. Uh, they have essentially, which, which is a mobile crisis unit, so they will be able to go wherever there is a need. Um, and, you know, I think a big part of the work that we'll be doing, especially during this first phase of implementation, is collecting data and having a better sense of what types of needs, uh, you know, are there, you know, are there different ways we could be thinking about the delivery of these support services. I think the data will very much inform uh, how we will grow, whether there will be a need for additional behavioral health agencies to come on board to assist Wheeler, whether Wheeler will expand or increase their staff uh, to support the effort. So I'm really excited uh, just to learn uh, at this point, right, um, uh, from the experiences within the next six months to help inform uh, what potential future expansion would look like. Uh, a comment and a question by uh, Rob Ketter, one of our uh, developmental and behavioral pediatricians. Uh, Rob says, thank you so much for an amazing presentation. What role will Hartford Public Schools play with supporting children's emotional and behavioral health and well-being? Sure. Thank you for the question. Um, so we work very, very closely with Superintendent uh, Dr. Leslie Torres Rodriguez and her team and her team of, of social workers and clinicians. Uh, and you know, just uh, recently, in fact, both Patricia and myself met um, um, uh, with uh, you know folks within the educational uh, system to talk about this heart team and how we will make this connection to the public school system, right? Um, and so Wheeler already is responding to calls uh, from the school system if there is a student that is distressed, um, but that is during school hours. We know that our kids, right, on weekends and nights are also experiencing, um, you know, uh, challenges. And so we wanted to make sure that in an event that Wheeler is um, responding to a Hartford Public student or even a Crex student, which is a different educational system, on nights and weekends that we're ensuring we all also inform the school system as well with, of course, parental consent. Uh, we think it's really important that the school system be aware of, of what might be impacting that child, that student, when they show up to school the next day, right? So that the school is better prepared to respond to the needs of that student. Um, we, again, are talking a lot to Dr. Uh, Torres uh, Rodriguez and her team about um, this issue of sharing data. Um, it is complicated, right? Because there are lots of privacy laws for very good reason to protect what information can be shared. But one of the challenges is it doesn't allow us to work well in creating um, 
you know, comprehensive solutions um, for children and families that are in crisis. So a lot of times when the school system is trying to assist or uh, we, the city, are trying to assist, we don't have all the information we need to work together more effectively to coordinate care. Uh, so that way it is not as burdensome uh, uh, for families that are in crisis, right, that have a very difficult time navigating all of these systems. Uh, so we're trying to identify ways, again, um, that we can share information to better coordinate, and we are um, having those conversations on a very regular basis. It's, it's very important. Uh, what do you find is the most effective way to get city residents engaged in this work? Um, by helping them lead the work, uh, right? And so, you know, I don't think anyone wants to feel like they're a problem that has to be solved. I think lived experience is just as valuable, if not more valuable, than professional experiences. I think, you know, our residents in, are superhuman when I think about the challenges they face every day and the fact that they are still getting up and putting one foot in front of the other despite um, the adversity they have to overcome. I think that speaks volumes of um, who they are and their ability um, to get things done and, and, and really difficult, complex things. And I think we need to create spaces for them to lead. I, I, I don't think they just want to be the beneficiary of assistance. I think they want a role to play in actually, you know, building and strengthening community. You know, I'll say to you, I do a lot of work with persons that are incarcerated or that have been recently released. Um, for two years, we've been working on an effort uh, through the reentry center to employ some of those persons coming home uh, because the vast majority of persons uh, that are coming home, uh, there's actually, there was an article in the New York Times just this weekend about this. When you look at the homeless population, many of them um, have just been released from prison. And so if you've just been released, you're 10 times more likely to be homeless, right? And so we think there's a way that, you know, with our reentry center, we can prevent the issue of homelessness by connecting those persons to jobs. And so we created a jobs program where persons that are going into the reentry center that are on the verge of homelessness will be employed to beautify our neighborhoods. Um, so as you're driving down Albany Avenue, Avenue or Franklin Avenue, we're going to have these team um, of uh, neighborhood ambassadors that are beautifying and maintaining our neighborhoods. So they started on Monday. Um, I was like be beside myself because we've been working on this for two years. Uh, and so I get in the car and I'm driving down Franklin Avenue looking uh, for our ambassadors and I find them and I, you know, park the car and get out and I, I just thank them profusely. Um, and I tell them how grateful I am to them for signing up to do this work. And this one man who happened to just get out of prison, Hartford resident, um, you know, said to me, you don't have to thank me. Um, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. I've always wanted to try to do something positive. Thank you for giving me that chance. And like here he is for hours picking up trash. And he was just so grateful to even be able to do that because, you know, for him, that was his way of, of being part of community and doing something positive. And I think the vast majority of our residents want opportunities to do that. And so, you know, uh, Mayor would say this himself, Mayor is not going to change the city of Hartford, right? City Hall is not going to change the city of Hartford. It is uh, the residents themselves that are going to change the city when they feel that they have an active role in driving and leading that change. Uh, what sort of, this is a little more of a, more, more, diff, a little bit of a shift and, and uh, but, but important. Yeah. What sort of strategies is the city employing to prevent and intervene in firearm violence? 
little bit of left field in this one, so that, but it's uh, an important one. This is one that uh, many people think about and it affects our children. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a huge, huge issue uh, in the city of Hartford. Certainly we did a virtual town hall probably a month ago that was specifically focused on uh, a study that we had done of fatal and non-fatal shootings in the city of Hartford. Violence certainly has increased throughout the country. We have seen uh, a large number of illegal firearms. In fact, our police department um, confiscated uh, a record number of firearms uh, just this year. Um, I spend an enormous time thinking about ways in which uh, we can prevent or reduce violence, and, and there certainly are, are several ways of doing that. Um, I will focus on the, the non-law enforcement aspect of it. You know, uh, we know uh, just, you know, that uh, people that are victims of violence, um, of gun violence, tend to uh, be re-victimized or perpetrators of gun violence. And so um, I've been developing a partnership with CCMC, specifically Dr. Kevin Burrup and his incredible team about figuring out a way that we can implement a hospital violence, um, uh, a hospital-based violence intervention uh, program here in Hartford, an HVIP model. So it's a model where uh, hospitals have staff available to specifically work with someone who's coming in to be treated um, because they have been injured by, you know, or a victim of gun violence. And the data and research shows us uh, that when persons are receiving care, they, at that very moment, um, are more likely to accept assistance, right? Um, and maybe it changes, uh, you know, um, uh, or reduces the likelihood of them being re-victimized or being a perpetrator of gun violence. And so for a city with a history as ours, as violent as ours, the fact that we have not had an HVIP model uh, is stunning, um, but uh, the fact that we're finally going to have one is incredible. And again, it's be been because of CCM's leadership and helping us build that out, and we hope to be able to announce that in the coming weeks. And that will be available not just for adults, but also uh, young people, and that will not just be specific to gun violence. We're also looking at other forms of violence as well. Yeah, thank you. We really appreciate your partnership with our Injury Prevention Center. Uh, clearly important outcomes. Uh, we have two more questions, and then we, we, will, we have to close. Um, the, thank you. This is from Jessica Geit, uh, one, of, one, one, of, uh, one of our psychologists. Uh, thank you so much for your presentation today and sharing all this information. The Heart Team Program is an excellent resource for Hartford. Curious if you happen to know if this type of program will be a model for other towns and cities in Connecticut as part of a broader national implementation of a 988 hotline. Um, so any any ideas of other other towns that are following this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's certainly, given the murder of George Floyd and the national you know uh, movement across this country to rethink the way in which we police our communities, we have seen a huge increase in the number of, of uh, cities and towns across this country that are thinking about implementing this same type of model. Um, certainly, like I said, there are cities that have already been doing this, and so they were part of the 20 communities we looked at to see what we could learn from what they were doing to inform what we did here in Hartford. I know in the state of Connecticut, the city of New Haven is actively working uh, towards implementing a similar model. Um, we have received so many inquiries from other cities and towns, not just in Connecticut, but across the country, who um, are beginning their planning efforts and are trying to understand what we did in Hartford to help inform their planning efforts um, in their own community. So I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic uh, that we are going to see this type of model uh, you know, elsewhere. 
That's great. I hope you publish that in the, in the, in the medical uh, literature. I think it would be important to look at outcomes. Uh, last question from Rob Ketter. Uh, thank you for your work with individuals who are reentering society. There's research that suggests a high correlation with functional illiteracy and being incarcerated. What opportunities are there for us to help prevent incarceration um, through literacy promotion here in Hartford? Yeah, um, that is absolutely right. You know, and, and speaking with, you know, members of community who are engaging in criminal activity, you know, many of them, you know, have said to me that uh, they just um, had limited options because of the fact they may have never graduated from high school. Um, and unfortunately, once they are incarcerated, they don't always have, you know, the educational opportunities, uh, you know, to improve literacy levels and things of that nature. And so when they come out, they, you know, find themselves in the same set of circumstances that led them to that. Um, and so, you know, we have a very, very strong partnership with the Hartford Public Library, which is the People's University. Our library is one of the best library, uh, library systems in this entire Entire country. They have been recognized as that. We have six locations throughout the city, including the downtown branch. Um, we just opened up an, another beautiful branch not too far from the hospital on Park Street that was 20 years in the making. Um, and it finally opened uh, just within this past year. Uh, they do a ton of work uh, with both children, youth, and adults. All the programming they do is free. Huge, huge focus on literacy. Um, if you were go, if you were to go to the downtown library branch, there's actually an employment center that is located within the library. There are uh, employment specialists that are there to assist, uh, you know, with creating a resume or looking for job opportunities. Um, we're also building out a partnership with Capital Community College um, and trying to create programs, credentialing programs, um, to assist our residents with finding employment, so that. You know, some jobs don't necessarily require an associate's or bachelor's degree, but maybe there's some sort of specialized training or credential they need. So we're trying to figure out how to develop those partnerships with the library, with our local community college, to help people, um, you know, um, with issues around literacy, right? Um, so that they are set up uh, to succeed uh, and uh, have a higher chance of being employed. Thank you. Uh, I am so impressed with the all the new initiatives and and outcomes in the city and uh, you know, congratulations to, to you and the mayor and your teams for what you are doing to change Hartford. I think it's, uh, it's transformative in so many ways and we need to celebrate all of that uh, and, and you know, just you know, very proud of the work that you're, you're doing. Uh, thank you everyone for, uh, for joining us this morning. We had uh, three outstanding speakers and presentations uh, which is aligned with our diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy at Connecticut Children's on behalf of children and the children who live in Hartford and the state of Connecticut. So appreciate everyone joining us. Uh, Thea, thank, thank you so much for, for being be with us. Thank and um, and uh, Linda Berry, I still see her online, and Luis Rivera for joining us as well. And, and the entire team here that actually behind the scenes make sure that everything works really well, Nicole and, and Marianne and, and Marie Bulio and, uh, and, and, and Steve and uh, everyone who really makes it happen. There's a lot of work that takes place so that we can actually transmit these uh, presentations. They're now recorded. Please join in and make sure you sign uh, your, uh, uh, your CME and, uh, and give us some feedback on how everything is uh, went on. And next year, we'll come back. Uh, we'll, we'll continue to do this from, on behalf of everyone. So again, have a great day. Enjoy the weekend. Be safe. And we'll see you next week for Grand Rounds. Bye-bye.